1 Samuel chapter number 16, and we're going to begin here looking at the first 13 verses. <coughs> and so this is really uh, going to be kind of an overview of, of a lifetime uh, so that we can kind of gain some perspective. I think sometimes we focus in on, on small segments of a Bible character's life, important segments to be sure, things that we can learn, and certainly we can't cover anything in great detail when we look at a, a, encompassing the majority of a lifetime. But sometimes it's hard to discern the impact of that life without looking at the life in, in, a, in kind of a brief synopsis and overview. And so uh, as we look here this morning, Saul has been the first king of Israel. Uh, he has disobeyed the Lord, and because of his disobedience to the Lord, uh, he has found himself in a situation to where God has removed him or is going to remove him from the throne. Uh, and where we pick up reading this morning, we're in process. Uh, and so most monarchies, uh, whenever a king ascends the throne, it's an inherited, it's an inherited crown. It's an inherited kingdom. Uh, that wasn't true for Saul. Saul was chosen by God. He was the first king of Israel, but he failed. He was disobedient. He elevated himself. Uh, and because of that, uh, God removed him. And so then David is now chosen. And as David is chosen, <coughs> where we pick up reading this morning, it's important to note that uh, for him also, this is not something that he is inheriting. This is a ministry that God has given him. Um, and so with that thought in mind, 1 Samuel chapter number 16, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him uh, from, being, from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil and go, and I will send thee unto Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hear it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take an heifer with thee, and say, I am come to sacrifice to the Lord. And call Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show thee what thou shalt do. And thou shalt anoint unto me him whom I name unto thee. And Samuel did that which the Lord spake, and he came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming, and said, Comest thou peaceably? And he said, Peaceably I am come to sacrifice unto the Lord. Sanctify yourselves. And come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons, and he called them to the sacrifice. And it came to pass, when they were come, that he looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance, or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Then Jesse called to Benadab, made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this. Then Jesse made Shammah to pass by, and he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this. And again, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said unto Jesse, The Lord hath not chosen these. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Are here all thy children? And he said, There remaineth yet the youngest, and behold, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he come hither. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, and with all of a beautiful countenance, and goodly to look on. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward, so Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. I'm going to continue this morning on our theme of reaching out, but this morning we're going to focus on reaching out to God for ministry renewal. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for David and his example, even in failure, and his heart for you. Lord, I pray that we would learn and be reminded of much this morning. <clears throat> I pray that each of us would have a heart that's inclined to be be searching you out, to be seeking you, to be growing in your grace. Lord, may our lives be lives that can be used for your glory. In Jesus' name and amen. <coughs> Excuse me. As we look here this morning and begin, we are approximately a thousand years before the birth of Christ. And a thousand years before the birth of Christ, 
outside of a little town of Bethlehem, on the hillsides, amongst the flocks, sat a young man. He was not a young man that was noteworthy in any sense. He was obscure. He was the youngest of Jesse's eight sons. He was, by all counts, to the common eye, insignificant. He was not someone that anyone would look at and say that whenever this young man reaches adulthood that he is going to be an impactful leader. He was not like Saul. When God appointed Saul to be king, he, put, he chose a man in Saul that was head and shoulders, the Bible says, above the rest. He was someone that was regal and stately to look upon. He was someone that if you saw him enter into the room, you would look at him and you would say uh, that there's a leader. <clears throat> David, as a young man, bore none of those qualities. He was simply known around town as the one who sat and kept and tended to his father's sheep. He was known as a singer, one who composed and wrote poems, and many of them we read and are preserved in, uh, in Israel's hymn book in the Bible, the book of Psalms. And as we look at uh, David's writings now, they bear great significance, many of them inspired by the Holy Spirit of God to be canonized into the scripture. But at the time, it was hard to look and to see that there was anything special about him. Oh, sure, he was talented in poetry. He was faithful to tend his father's flock. He was one who was engaged in, uh, in uh, being respectful and serving. When you look at David, what marked his life, especially at this early stage, early stage of his life, was that of a servant. He served his father. He drew water for sheep. He minded them. He was respected, to be sure, but he was not viewed as significant. His brothers, on the other hand, whenever Saul came before, or Samuel came before them, he said, oh, surely this is the one. Uh, he looked at that stature. He looked at that presence. He looked at that foreboding and, and significant opportunity to, uh, to be involved and to be one who would be a leader and would be uh, grasping that which was done by God in Israel. <clears throat> As Samuel came, and the eight sons of Jesse passed by, or the seven sons prior, he looked and with each one he thought, maybe this one, maybe this one, maybe this one. And to his knowledge, it was all of them. But then David was brought before him. As David was brought before him, he looked at him and he said, and he described him uh, as we read this morning in, uh, in verse number 12, that he was ruddy. Ruddy means red, like Esau. Uh, it means that he was fair-fleshed. In other words, you would look at him and you would look at the countenance of his skin or the coloration of his skin and you would see that he was healthy, a healthy young man. Uh, you would see that perhaps his, uh, his hair had a reddish tint or was red. Uh, you would see that uh, he possibly at this early stage of life was freckled and being out in the sun and tending the sheep. He was one that was not, though handsome, one to stand out. But one thing did stand out and that was his countenance. It's amazing how countenance, how our demeanor, how our expression, how uh, our ability to convey a presence and a message just by uh, the way that we, the way that we pur purport ourselves amongst one another uh, speaks volumes. Some people you can look at instantly and see this person's body language and their countenance says they're approachable and they're concerned and they're uh, thoughtful and they're, uh, they're hungry to learn. Others you can tell by looking at them that they're closed off and that they're not interested in anyone but self or they're hurting. They're, maybe they're weeping, they're grief stricken and they're overwhelmed. Maybe they've got uh, other types of issues and it's hard to... Uh, to look and to discern. With David, when you looked at him, the Bible says his countenance was beautiful. He's someone that would have been easily approachable, someone that would have been, as a young man, not one that you would seek to avoid, but that you might, in fact, be uh, drawn to in that way. <clears throat> and so at this point in his life, no one would look at him and say, there goes our next king. No one would look at him and say, there's the slayer of the giant Goliath. No one would look at him and say, there's a young man that's capable of grabbing a lion and a, beer, and a bear by the beard and, and striking them down uh, in the field. No one would look at him and say uh, that this is a man who will one day be our great leader. Not just a uh, great leader, but their greatest leader up until, until the time that Jesus returns. 
And so when you consider uh, what stood before him, uh, consider many young people that we look at today as you look around and you see young men and young ladies come in and out of church and we look and we see their development and their growth and it's oftentimes the one uh, that everyone would look at and say, this was true when I was, I remember, I think it's just generationally true, uh, that the most of the people that you look at when you're in junior high and high school and say, there goes someone that's going to be a great success and a failure, generally that person ends up being a life that's tragic and tragically wasted. And the person that you look at and say, that person's going nowhere, they've got nothing to offer, uh, oftentimes end up rising uh, to be the ones that make the greatest impact throughout their lifetime. We, we look and we make valuations and judgments based on our perception, but God knows what lies deep within us. And David is looked at and God chooses him because of his heart and because of what's in him. No one would have looked at him and said that he would become anything other than Jesse's youngest son. No one would look at David and say he's going to ever amount to anything more than just being a little shepherd boy. No one would ever look at him and say, uh, they may look and say he's a great shepherd, he's going to have great flocks, he may amass some wealth, but not to be a significant leader. No one would look at him and say that he'll ever be anything more than just a, a servant. No one would look at him and say that he's ever going to become more than just a, uh, a poet out in the fields with uh, nothing else to do whenever the sheep are resting and grazing than to just uh, write poetry. But the truth of the matter is, is that though few would recognize it today, that the very traits that David described, that are described as having, the very traits that he demonstrates as a shepherd and as a singer and as a servant are the very traits of great leadership. In every realm and every spectrum, great leaders that rise and that God blesses are shepherd-hearted. They care about tending their flock. Whether it's in the business world, the greatest leaders care about their employees more than they care about their business. They realize that their greatest asset, that their greatest, the thing that makes them successful, the thing that makes them go and produce is their employees. Uh, the greatest school superintendent realizes that their greatest asset is their teachers and their, uh, and their staff, the ones that invest in life, from life to life. The, uh, and David, as a shepherd, sat out in the fields and he cared about tending his flock. He cared about leading them to green pastures. He cared about meeting their needs. He cared about protecting them from evil. He cared about, uh, about watching over them. And, uh, and caring for them. And every great leader has a shepherd's heart. It doesn't matter if it's in a military context, if it's in a business context, if it's in a ministry context. It may not always demonstrate itself or manifest itself uh, in the same way, but at the base of it, uh, it's always driven by that shepherd heart, that desire to love, that desire to nurture, that desire to care and to provide uh, for their men. And David possessed that quality. He was a servant at heart. He's brought in and he's the only one that's been excluded. He's the only one out in the field. Nowhere is there complaint. Nowhere is there a, this isn't fair. Nowhere is there a, why didn't I get considered uh, to be brought before Samuel whenever this was going to be bestowed? Why was I the one that you just assumed uh, that he wouldn't be interested in and you left me out in the field? There's just simply compliance and there's service to his father. Honorable service speaks volumes to character uh, and to uh, the uh, matters of the heart. And so as David comes in, we see that he's that great servant, but we also see that in his life he is a great worshiper of God. He loves the Lord. And as he sits out in the field, rather than just pining away, wasting his time on idle thought, and whenever things are quiet and when the sheep are resting and whenever there's no danger to be, uh, to be thwarted, he is worshiping and praising his God. His eyes and his attention and his heart is toward the Lord as a boy. Great qualities. Qualities that define the character of David throughout his lifetime. Oh, I know that we can look and we can mark and distinguish significant failure in his life. We know that he was uh, an adulterer. We know that he committed murder. We know that he, uh, that he failed to, <coughs> to judicially pr to protect his, uh, his family and do his duty as king and father when Amnon uh, raped his sister Tamar. We know that he failed to forgive Absalom. 
We know that he trusted too much in self when he took a census and looked at what he had accomplished rather than being obedient and just trusting and being grateful for what God had given him. These are all breakdowns and these moments of great character. These are all things that he would commit tragic sin that would lead to great consequences for him. But always is he a man after God's own heart. He failed, yes, but he always came to the Lord because his heart was toward the Lord. And the lesson is, is that we're all going to struggle in this life. We're all going to have seasons of failure. We're all going to have times in which we succumb to and are overwhelmed by sin. But does our heart bring us back to search God? Does our heart bring us to a place where we're broken about that sin? Does it bring us to a place where we bear the consequence of that sin, not uh, being bitter and angry at God, but realizing that though the cost of my sin and the price of it is great, uh, I, uh, I must bear it and God's grace is sufficient to see me through it. And so David exemplifies these character and these quality traits. And these also are the quality traits that define the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is a shepherd. He's the good shepherd, the great shepherd. Jesus is a servant. He came not to serve himself, but to serve you and I. He came to do the will of his Father. He came to offer forgiveness, to provide atonement for sin, uh, and to bring, uh, to bring before us. He is the servant leader, uh, the, the quintessential servant leader. And his life is defined by his worship of his Father in heaven and the doing of his will, by his service uh, in providing salvation to the lost sheep and seeking us out, and as our good and great shepherd. They should be the qualities that define every Christian. Every Christian should have a shepherd's heart. But pastor, you're the pastor, you're the under shepherd, you're the one that's to watch out and watch for our souls true. But whose soul are you watching out for? Every Christian should have another soul that they're reaching out for. If you're reaching out to someone, if you're sharing the gospel with someone, if you're discipling someone, if you're concerned about someone, if you're praying for someone, if you're taking someone under your wing, are you a shepherd to them? Are you willing to look out for them? Are you willing to, uh, to intervene on their behalf? Are you willing to nurture them and to care for them and to provide them? Are you this morning a servant? Are you looking for avenues to serve the Lord? Are you looking for opportunities to serve the Lord? Are we the kind of Christians that just want to come uh, and to receive? Are we coming this morning simply for what we can get? Or are we coming to worship our God and to look for an avenue uh, and a direction and a path in which we can offer him service? To express and to demonstrate our love. And the Christian life should be marked and defined by a people of God who have servants and shepherds' hearts that are looking for someone that they can share the gospel with and that they can nurture and help them in their growth and their Christian walk and can reach out to them and help meet their spiritual needs and guide them and, uh, and help them and, and to feed them and to nurture them spiritually, uh, to be looking for avenues to serve our God and to be a people that are leading them by our own singing, our own worship and praise of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every Christian's life should be marked by the traits that marked and defined the life of, of David. David, to the surprise of everyone but God, rose to be Israel's king, but not just their king, their greatest king. He rose to be the one who would set the nation on a path to serve the Lord. Yes, he would fail and he would sometimes get in his own way. But when you read throughout the Kings and the Chronicles, what you see over and over again is that this young man uh, that rose to the throne following him either did that which was evil, not after the ways of his father David, or he did that which was right in the Lord after the ways or the heart of his father David. It all points back to David. Jo Joseph is traced back to David. Mary is traced back to David. It's pointed out in Ruth's life uh, that she was, the, uh, that she was uh, the one who was going to be the grandmother, the great-grandmother to David. She was the one that was going to direct us to the one who would be that great king, the sweet psalmist of Israel, Israel's great king, Israel, uh, and David, a man after God's own heart and the progenitor of the coming Messiah. <clears throat> he is handpicked by God for a ministry that only he at this point could fulfill. And David's life was filled true with many successes. We, we forget about them because many of the great ones came, uh, or the most significant ones came early in life. 
Their significance primarily is because they marked and defined him as a great man. They showed what God could do in the heart and the life of faith. But his life was filled with successes. And yes, it was marred by many failures. But his faith propelled him to be a difference maker. His faith propelled him to be one who would go out and set the course that would show the way, that would rise up in faith and defy the odds and, uh, and be what God wanted him to be. And yes, while he enjoyed that success and his sin entered, that sin would come and rob him of the joy of many of those successes at times. And the cost and the consequences of that sin at times in his life would be overwhelming. Four of his sons would die because of his murder of Uriah and his sin with Bathsheba. He would live to see three of those deaths. He would be a man who would know what it was like to see people suffer because of decisions that he made that were in defiance of what God had told them. It was overwhelming. But David always reached out to renew his walk with God. He always reached out and sought forgiveness for his sin. He sought to renew himself to the task that God had given him as Israel's king and leader. A kingdom, again, that he did not inherit. A kingdom that was assigned to him by God as ministry. And so my friends, this morning, whatever it is that God has placed in your life, you should view it as a ministry. If I were to go around the room this morning to every Christian and say, what's your ministry? Every Christian should have an answer. And it may not all be the same. Certainly it wouldn't all be the same. I have multiple ministries. One is as a pastor of Victory Baptist Church. One is as a grandfather to my grandchildren, a father to my children, a husband to my wife, a leader to our church staff. It is uh, a multifaceted ministry, as is yours. Some of you <coughs> have many of the same ministries. Some of you have the ministry of ambassador to a place of work. Some of you have a ministry, all of us have a ministry to convey the gospel and to live a life that would draw people to Christ and be a light that shines in the darkness to the neighbors amongst whom we live. All of our lives should be lives that make a difference just because we don't hold a position necessarily of authority within the church body uh, does not mean that we do not have ministry. Every believer, every Christian has ministry from God. Do we see our lives as a life of ministry? <clears throat> Do we see our lives as something that, uh, that God has gifted us uh, to represent him in and to walk with him in? One of David's requirements was that uh, he shepherd the God, God's people. The, the lessons that he learned as a shepherd in the field are the lessons that he needed to employ as a king over God's people. Instead of his father's sheep, now he was watching over the Lord's sheep. Instead of uh, serving his father's uh, livestock, he was now serving God's people. We should see leadership in our, in our areas of leadership not as, uh, as a claim to glory or uh, an opportunity for others to come and to serve us, but for us to serve them. True leadership is service. It's not being served. David demonstrated that well. So I want you to consider three things about David's life this morning that I think will help us to understand that I need, yes, to be revived, but just coming to God and just having God bring revival in my heart and just having God speak to me and breaking me down and causing me to repent of my sin, if I come to that time and that point in my life, whether it be in my personal study or whether it be in a revival service at the end of a week in that final service when the Holy Spirit tends to break through and people flood the altar and we leave rejoicing and forgiven and praising God and saying what great things God has done in my heart and then two weeks later we're right back in the same problems that we were in. Why? Did we get revived? Yes. Did we get renewed? Probably not. Renewal is in addition to revival. When I get revived, that's wonderful. But if I don't renew my walk with God and renew my commitment to God and renew my love for God, then it's not going to be long lived. I don't want to live my life in a state of the necessity of need of perpetual revival. I don't want to be that person that has to have some supernatural moving of God in my life that, uh, that's earth shattering a week to week to week to week to week in order to feel like I'm walking with God. 
I want to be that person that God has stirred my heart and I've got a great love for God and I want to serve God with my life and with my heart. Uh, whether it's as a pastor, whether it's as a lay person, whether it's on a job or whether it's in my home, uh, wherever it may be, I want to be that person that's just passionate about God and what God has done for me and my relationship with Him and His relationship with me. I want to be passionate in those things. How does that happen, Pastor? Well, it's not going to happen if you're living from revival meeting to revival meeting. It's going to happen when revival comes and you renew. When you renew daily that walk with God. When you renew daily that commitment to God. When you renew daily uh, that love for God. So we're going to consider some things about David's life this morning. First of all, I'd ask you to consider his resume. Consider David's resume. First, I would say this morning that David lived a life of worship. That's not really what you would expect to see on the resume of a king. <laughs> when God was deciding who was going to replace Saul, he didn't ask for the submission of resumes. But yet he knew what was on everyone's resume. And when he looked for that replacement king, when he looked for that one to be the father of Messiah, when he looked for that one that was going to be a man after his own heart, he looked at the resume of David and what he looked and found was a young man who was insignificant, who was not noteworthy in any way, who was sitting out on the edge of a field, a servant to his father, a worshiper of his God, and a shepherd to his flock. <clears throat> he looked for a man who lived a life of worship. And my friends, this morning, if God would be significant in your life, you must be a person of worship. You must be a person that worships God, not in a service only on Sunday morning, but each and every day of your life. Public worship is important. It's paramount. It's commanded by God. We need one another. We need the camaraderie. Uh, there, are, there are some when they walk in, uh, that I am glad that they're here. I tell you, the last couple of weeks, I've missed Miss Patty and her family. You know why? Because Miss Patty's always got a smile on her face. I know her life can't be that great. I, I mean, I know that everything doesn't always go her way. I know that every day's not easy. I mean, I've spent a little bit of time with Melanie. I know how difficult it could be. Uh, I've seen Pedro in action. I know how hard uh, some days have to be, uh, especially in the morning. If you get Pedro moving early in the morning, you've done something. Uh, and so, uh, but always there's joy. Always there's a smile. Always there's happiness. And whenever I walk in and she walks into the building uh, as her pastor, it just lifts my spirit because there's a joy about her spirit. There are other people, whenever they walk in, it deflates. Don't be that deflator. Uh, don't be that, uh, there's some balloons out in the lobby this morning just kind of to celebrate the fact that we're launching a new theme for the year. And Don't be that person that walks in and your countenance is not beautiful, but it's the one that pops the balloons and makes them drop to the floor. And so I want to be that person that kind of puts that, uh, that puts that air in there. Say, Pastor, you got plenty of hot air this morning. They'll all float and carry the building up. And so, but I want to be that joyful countenance. What I'm just simply saying this morning is this, is that, that we all ought to be a people that live a life of worship. We need one another. We need to draw off of one another's love for the Lord. We need to draw off of one another's service to the Lord. But that's not enough. If you've not worshipped at home throughout the week, you're not going to have much to contribute on Sunday, nor are you going to be, be positioned to receive what God has for you in full either. I need to worship God from day to day. I need to worship God throughout my life. David didn't just worship in the synagogue. Uh, David didn't just worship. There were no synagogues at that time. I realized that. But David, he didn't just worship whenever it was, uh, the, whenever it was uh, public time to worship or feast or things like that. He was worshiping daily out in the pasture. He was writing. He was singing. He was playing. He was worshiping God daily. David not only lived a life of worship, but David lived a life of service. He was constantly in service. Hey, listen, the youngest brother, seven older brothers. Now, in my family, <coughs> I tended to be the oldest, so that makes it a little bit more difficult for me to relate. But my wife is the baby of nine. She understands that they're pampered and they're put up on a pedestal and that they don't have to do anything. I'm just kidding. <laughs> that they're the servant. 
They're the ones to take care of mom and dad. They're the ones to help do the cleaning. They're the ones to help clean up and follow behind everyone else's mess. They're the ones that are just expected to kind of blend into the background and not be as noticed. I think every youngest child, regardless of size of family, would probably say amen to that. Whether it's true completely or not, it's true at least in some level. And what I'm saying this morning is that David was that guy. He had seven older brothers. Seven older brothers to pick on him. Seven older brothers to beat him down. Seven older brothers to put him in his place. Seven older brothers to say, this is my chore, but I don't want to do it today. If you don't do it, then I'm going to kill you. And seven older brothers to just call out every mistake that he ever made and remind him constantly of them. Seven older brothers that made his life miserable. But David just served. There's no complaining. There's no resentment. And it's interesting that throughout David's life, you never hear him make a complaint against his brothers. If, if the closest that you would come is whenever he's out at the battlefield and whenever they're facing Goliath and they're rebuking him for being, uh, being arrogant and prideful and, uh, and saying that how, how are you not standing up to this, to this giant, this bully that's defying the armies of God? When you look at David's life, it's a life of service. He served his father. My friends, this morning, every child, every young person in here, you should be a servant to your mom and dad. If you still live under their roof, if you're still under their authority, if you still, uh, your heart towards your parents should be the heart of a servant. You should be seeking how you could help, how you could make their life more enjoyable, how you could make their life more meaningful, how you could make them uh, want to be in your presence and not uh, long for the day that you turn 18 and move away. Uh, you should uh, be that servant-hearted young person. David was a servant to his father. But not only was he a servant to his father, but what you see in chapter 17 and 18 and 19 and on is that he was a servant to his king. And his king was not an honorable king. His king was a corrupt king. His king was a king that lacked faith on the battlefield with Goliath. His king was a king uh, that, that did not treat him fairly. His king was a king that was jealous and envious against him. His king was a king that tried to kill him on multiple occasions. His king was a king that found out that God, after he had been told by the prophet that he would lose the throne, uh, that, he, uh, that he chased David across the countryside for years. David, at the time that he slew Goliath, was a teenager. At the time that he became the king, he was 30. We don't know how long uh, for sure that, that he was, uh, you know, or how old for sure he was when he slew Goliath or how long it was before Saul turned on him within the palace. But you can take and, and understand that there's a considerable amount of time, perhaps 10 years or more, in which David was constantly in fear of his life, constantly on the run, constantly looking over his shoulder, constantly concerned that, that the king would catch up with him and take his life. But what did he do? He served him. He was known for serving him. Whenever people that were out and maybe weren't around Jerusalem, didn't have the knowledge and around the, king, around the, uh, the, the palace, that didn't have maybe the intimate knowledge of what was going on inside, when they considered David, it was unthinkable to them that David wasn't the greatest of the king's servants. Everything that he did, he did to serve his king and to worship his God. He served his father. He served his king. When he became king, he served his people. He didn't live his life looking for what he could get. He lived his life looking for how he could lead and how he could honor and how he could help his people. Whose life this morning am I helping? Whose life this morning, Christian, are you investing in? Who are you serving? His lifetime was spent with a few sin lapses in service of his God. And listen this morning, if I do not serve my father, if I do not serve my king, if I do not serve my people, then it's impossible for me properly to serve my God. Am I a servant of the living God this morning? Every Christian should ask themselves that question. When you look at your spiritual resume between yourself and the Lord this morning, would God look at you and say that you're living a life of worship to Him? Would God look at you this morning and say that you're living a life of service to Him? 
that you've honored the leaders that God has placed in your life, that you've served, uh, that you've served uh, where God is, where it's been appropriate for you to serve. Are you serving the people in your care? Sunday school teacher, are you serving your class? Are you, uh, are you a careful to attend to their needs? Are you shepherding them? Are you shepherding your parent, your family? Are you caring for your children? Are you meeting their needs? And I'm not talking about just putting a roof over their head and food in their bellies. I'm talking about nurturing them and training them and causing them by your own example to love the Lord and live for God and have a desire to serve him his people his God we see thirdly not only did he live a life of worship and a life of service but that he lived a life of honor David's life was a life of honor he in honor defended Israel just as a teenage boy, as he, <coughs> as he uh, went out at his father's will, serving his father, honoring his father, goes out to the battlefield to take his brothers who are in the army now, uh, their, some food, and to get a report for his father to see how things are going. When he sees the giant Goliath ridiculing and mocking and defying the armies of the living God, he is so appalled that he can no longer stand still or say silent he is out there and he in honor is willing to defend Israel when no one else was willing to rise to the occasion David in faith rose to the occasion David made his case to the people David made his case to the king David took his faith in God David went and selected five smooth stones David, uh, whenever Saul tried to put on him his army, said, I'm not trained in this. I've not proved this. I can't handle these weapons, but I know this shepherd's sling. And they all looked at him as if he were a fool. You're going to go out a young, ruddy, freckled, frail teenage boy against a man that stood by all accounts 10 feet tall in height and had... A sword that David at this point in his life probably struggled even to, uh, to lift whenever he severed it, when he used it to cut off Goliath's head. And he said, I don't care uh, what you think or what you say, but this man will not defy my God and nothing be done about it. And when the king did nothing and when the army did nothing, David said, take your armor and take your sword and give me my sling. And he, slows, he chose his stones and he went out with nothing but a sling and a shepherd's bag. And he stood before a man fully armed, a valiant warrior, and he began to sling that, swing that sling. And when he looked at Goliath and Goliath said, I'm going to cut off your head and feed it to the birds. He said, no, God's going to deliver you into my hand. And he flung that stone and God guided that little rock, that little missile right between the eyes of a giant and he fell and the whole countryside gasped and a young boy went and pulled this, picked up a sword and held it up with both hands probably taking much of his might and brought it down and cut off the head of a giant and held it up in triumph as he stood there before the armies of the Philistines and Israel and he took it back to the king. A man who stood valiantly in honor risking his own life when no one else would defending his cause he honored secondly his dishonorable king Saul brought him home Saul said comfort me with your singing and then Saul got jealous and felt threatened and as David grew and grew stronger and became skilled with a sword and became skilled in, uh, in the ways of war and proved himself on the battlefield and the, the people of Israel began to sing uh, as he would come back in triumph from battle that Saul is slain at thousands but David is ten thousands. Then the then this king got jealous and began to try to slay him and was uh, even tried to slay his own son Jonathan because Jonathan loved David so much that he was willing to cede his own position as the next king to David because he knew that God chose David for that position. He honored that dishonorable king. 
What would we do? Most of us would say, you're not honorable. Most of us would have taken the opportunities that David had uh, to slay Saul and to accelerate our, uh, our rise to the throne. After all, God gave it to me. After all, it's what God promised me. God's the one that said I was here. And at least on two different occasions, David had the opportunity to kill Saul and to become immediately the king and have everyone follow him. But he was not going to lift his hand against someone that God had anointed in that position. It didn't matter whether or not Saul was honorable, David was going to behave himself honorably. My friends, this morning, it doesn't matter if our government's honorable. It doesn't matter if other believers around us are honorable. It doesn't matter if our, if our employees are honorable. We must be honorable before God. When we're honorable, we make a difference. And David lived a life of honor. And David not only honored God as he defended Israel and honored a dishonorable king in Saul, he honored the sacrifice of his valiant mighty men. At a time on the run from Saul, whenever he longed for a drink from the well in Bethlehem, you'll remember uh, some of his men went and put their lives in jeopardy to get him a drink of water from the well of his hometown. Imagine the love and the devotion that those men had for David as their leader. And listen, I'm not one to, uh, to elevate uh, human leadership to a place of deity, but it's not wrong to honor those that serve the Lord and lead us on his behalf. They loved David and honored him so greatly that they, they, they hazarded their lives to go and get him a drink of water from the well. And when they brought it back, David honorably said, I will not partake of that which these men have risked their lives to provide. And he didn't pour it out to waste it. He poured it out an offering to God. To honor them and to honor the Lord. He behaved himself honorably. In the king's house in 1 Samuel 18, three times it says that David behaved himself more wisely and wi than Saul's men. David, in his youth, was a, was a wise man. <coughs> Consider this morning his resume. A life of worship. A life of service. A life of honor. And a life of faith. He had faith to face a lion and a bear out in the fields. As a boy, even younger than he was when he slew Goliath, God brought a lion and a bear to build his faith, to prepare him for what lied before. David had no idea when he faced the lion and the bear that one day he would face Goliath, but God knew. David had no idea that he would someday be the king, but God knew. David had no idea what he would see and what would come to fruition in his lifetime and the battles that he would face, but God knew. And in bringing the lion and the bear, God built his faith and grew his confidence in God. And he slew them. He had the faith to face the lion and the bear in the field to protect some sheep. He had the faith to face Goliath and he had the faith to wait for God's will when he was on the run from Saul. My friends, this morning, do we have the faith to face the battles that God puts in our path? The faith to face the battles that need to be fought to defend truth. Do we have the faith to wait on God whenever we impatiently uh, are frustrated that what God has promised is not coming fast enough to suit us? David's faith was great. Secondly, consider not only David's resume, but David's regrets. David's life was not a life of perfection. It was a life that was marred by sin. And just like my life is marred by sin and your life is marred by sin, so it was David's. And we can take great comfort in knowing that David, even in his tremendous failures, was not cast aside and forgotten by God, but was forgiven and was restored on every occasion. God did not grow weary with him. Did God grow angry at him? Certainly. <coughs> did he get frustrated? Did he bring his chastening hand? Yes. But he never grew weary of him. Consider his regrets. I would say this morning two primary regrets, and they're multifaceted. Number one is the regret of his disengagement. David's great sin is that he disengaged from doing the will and the work of God. Say, so, Pastor, what about the adultery? What about the murder? A result of disengagement. If David had simply been where he was supposed to be when he was supposed to be there, he would not have been tempted. And that acting on that temptation would not have led him to make the decisions to murder later. David disengaged 
from what God had given him to do. And because he stayed home at the time that kings were to go out to battle, he saw a beautiful Bathsheba bathing on the rooftop. And he summoned her. And he committed adultery with her. And she conceived a child. And then he summoned her husband home from the battlefield. A man more honorable than him, a Hittite fighting the armies of Israel. And as Uriah came, David sent his own death warrant by his hand back to the front so that he would be executed. Concealed it in a way that made it look like it was an honorable death in battle, but God knew the truth. Consider his regret of disengagement. First of all, he stayed home from battle, disengaging from his responsibility as the king, which led to his adultery. We see later that he refrained from judicial responsibility whenever the wars were settled and whenever Amnon uh, listened to the counsel of a cousin and took his sister Tamar and raped her. Uh, and he did not execute justice and judgment upon his son. And Absalom, uh, then after two years of waiting and uh, waiting for David to do the right thing, uh, took matters into his own hand and murdered his brother. He refrained from judicial responsibility, disengaging from his responsibilities as king. <coughs> Third, we see that there was an unwillingness to forgive. Absalom fled until finally Joab approached David and confronted him and said, you've got to bring Absalom back. And he brought him back, but only partially. And he only partially forgave him. He let him come back, but he wouldn't let him come and see him. He could live in the city, but he couldn't come to the palace. And he caused uh, great, uh, great discouragement and great bitterness to well up in Absalom's heart. He, he was disengaged from his responsibility as a father. He disengaged in his responsibility as a king. He disengaged in his responsibility as judicially. He disengaged in his responsibility uh, as a father. And he disengaged in his responsibility to depend upon God when he conducted a census near the end of his life. And he, and he looked and focused at his reliance upon self. He no longer was fully dependent upon God. He defied God and wanted to see what have I done. Consider this morning then that regret of discouragement <clears throat> that it led to his regret of spiritual drift. How did David get there? David didn't just wake up one day and say, hey, I'm not going to battle today. He didn't get up one day and just say, hey, I'm going to sin against God and commit adultery. He didn't wake up one day and say, I'm just conveniently going to murder this guy that won't do what I want him to do. He didn't conveniently get up one day and say, today's the day uh, that one of my sons is going to rape one of his sisters and I'm just not going to do anything about that. He didn't, he didn't wake up that morning just expecting to not do what he was supposed to do. He didn't wake up and decide uh, that he was going to not be able to forgive in his heart his son Absalom. But because he drifted from God, he was in a weakened state and his judgment was compromised and he made a bad decision and a moment of weakness that led to tragic consequences. And my friends, this morning, that's exactly how sin creeps into our life. When I become complacent in my, wor my worship of God, when I become complacent in my service to God, when I become complacent in my devotion to God, when I become complacent in my in my day-to-day -day life with God, then it leads me to a time where I feel as if today is a day that it's okay for me to not engage in battle. Today is a day that it's okay for me to not fully execute what God gave me to do, to not fully be obedient to his will, to not fully do his work, to not fully invest in the people that God's put in my care. Today is the day that God, that I've decided uh, that I just, you know, God, I'm glad that you're there, but I don't need to spend as much time with you. I don't need you as much as I did a year ago. My, my life is good and everything is going okay and there's money in the bank and we have good health and people are being reached, but we get complacent in the work. We get complacent in our parenting. We get complacent in our marriages we get complacent on our jobs and it comes to a time where we just feel like we're entitled to do what we want to do rather than worshiping and honoring and serving God in our day-to-day -day life and it leads to tragic results when we decide to sin against God yeah. David drifted do you think that David came to the end of his life and said I'm glad that I stayed home from battle I think he regretted it do you think David got to the end of his life and said, you know, I'm, I, I wish I would have gone to battle, but, but it really, it was, I was entitled, it was okay. No, I think he looked back and said, 
I wish that I would have stayed closer to the Lord. I wish that I was as close to God in those moments of weakness as I had been out in the shepherd's field. I wish that I employed the faith and exercised the faith that I exercised on the day that I slew Goliath. I wish that I kept the armor that I carried for so long and put in my tent that was Goliath's to remind me of God's power and strength and goodness. I kept it in my bedchamber in my palace. I think he lived a life that had some regrets. Listen, as your pastor this morning, I'm trying to help you to understand the importance of being committed and revived and renewed in the work that God has given you so that you don't come to the end of your life and look back and have a life that's filled with regret. When there's no time to make restitution, David was a life that had some regrets. And lastly, this morning, consider David's renewal. To consider David's renewal, we have to turn to Psalm 51. Great psalm on repentance and forgiveness. And I'll try to move through this quickly. But I would say four parts of this this morning about renewal. Number one, renewal begins with confrontation. We don't have time this morning to turn there, but jot down 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verses 1 through 7. In 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verses 1 through 7, David has committed adultery. Uriah is dead. And the prophet Nathan comes to David and says, David, there was a man who had great flocks and great herds. And there was another man that had one special precious sheep. One little beautiful lamb that he loved. And the man took that one instead of using one of his own. And he stole it. David was so angry as a shepherd in a shepherd's heart. He knew the value and the love uh, for that animal, but he was missing the point. He had taken Uriah's one lovely lamb. When he could have had all that he wanted and God would have said, okay. Whenever he looked and was in his anger and wrath, said he'll restore fourfold and then he'll be executed. Nathan looked at him and pointed his finger at the king's face and said, Thou art the man. He was confronted. My friends, this morning may I say that renewal begins with confrontation. Joab came to him in forgiveness of of Absalom and said, King, I'm confronting you about your treatment of your son Absalom. Joab came to him when he wanted a census and confronted him about the sin of conducting the census, but David overruled him. David had people in his life that confronted his sin. David had people in his life that were willing to come to him and risk severing the relationship with him to make the point that you have sinned against God here. And my friends this morning understand that renewal begins with confrontation. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, I'm confronting you now with the truth that if you do not trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that when you leave this life, you will spend an eternity in the lake of fire. I don't say that to be mean. I don't say that because I don't love you, but because I do. I say that because it's the truth of God's word. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. There is only one way to the Father, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. There's, no, there's nothing I can do. There's no work that I can do. I can't be good enough. My life can't be changed enough. Christian, if you're here this morning, then you would say, Pastor, uh, you know, I've got this struggle and I've got that struggle. Look deep at your own heart and ask God to show you, is there sin between me and my Savior that is preventing God's working in my heart, preventing God's blessing on my life, preventing God from empowering me to reach others, to be a blessing to others, to be an encouragement to others, that's stealing my joy, that's overwhelming my soul. It begins, renewal begins with confrontation. Revival comes when we're confronted with our sin. The ministry of the prophets of the Old Testament was only very small, a very small percentage of that was ever telling about what might happen in the future. Almost all of it was confronting sin. My friends, this morning we need to have our sin confronted. God can confront my sin when I read my Bible on my own and worship him on my own. But oftentimes God confronts our sin when we see the uh, the righteous lives of other believers. 
Oftentimes God confronts our sin, the preached word of God. To the world it's foolishness, but to those of us that are saved and uh, love the Lord, it is the power of God. And we look and we understand this morning that renewal begins, begins with confrontation. David was confronted in 2 Samuel chapter 12 by the prophet Nathan. He was confronted by Joab, his, his general and great advisor. <clears throat> Secondly, I would say that renewal begins with conviction. Confrontation and conviction bring revival and begin renewal. I cannot just renew without revival. I have to be revived, but then I must renew. Notice in Psalm 51, in the first two verses, David said, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. How easy it is for us to tuck away and forget our sin. To dismiss it and to not even acknowledge that we've wronged God. That we've defied his word. Renewal begins with confrontation and it begins with conviction. What David is demonstrating here is that I have been confronted of my sin and the spirit of God has convicted me about it. Are we convicted by our sin? Or are we so calloused and are we so cold and are we so distant from God that God has to dig really deeply to penetrate a thick callus to even begin to cause us to feel his convicting power in our life. You stop and you think about, I remember as a kid getting a splinter and, and the thick pad on the bottom of my foot from going barefooted all the time outside or uh, calluses on the hand and uh, you get a big splinter and a deep callus and really it's not a big deal to just uh, cut it, take a knife and cut it and get it out or uh, take a needle and dig it out. There's no feeling of pain. There's no problem. It doesn't, it's, it's not an issue. How many of us this morning are living lives where we've got such deep calluses over our soul and our spirit that God is difficult for God to even convict us about our sin. That our conscience is like an iron burn where we've been seared and the nerve endings spiritually are dead to the sensation of the word of God confronting us in our sin. Will God have to drive a scalpel or a needle deep into our flesh before we even begin to feel his presence? David lived a life where he remained sensitive to the things of God. He cried out to God for forgiveness he felt a conviction of God's power. I would say this morning that not only does renewal begin with confrontation and begin with conviction, but renewal provokes confession. Because he was convicted, he confessed. He didn't confess because judgment was pronounced. He confessed because he wanted to be right with his God. He confessed because he felt the guilt and the weight of his sin. I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. In other words, I can't get away from it. It keeps me awake at night. It's in the, for, it's in the forefront of every thought. I cannot go anywhere. My conscience is so troubled. My sin is so overwhelming in my life that it is affecting every relationship. It is affecting every decision. It is, it is crushing my spirit. It is stealing my joy. And I need forgiveness from God so that my sins are cleansed, so that I am purged, so that my spirit is renewed within me, so that I am overjoyed in, the, in my walk with God again. God, I cannot live under the burden and the yoke of the sin. And the good news, Christian, this morning is that you don't have to. Amen. He set us free from that if we'll confess our sin before him. Fourthly, I would say that renewal produces continuance. Renewal produces continuance. It's the heart of the message this morning. It's not enough to just say, God, I've sinned against you, forgive me. I don't want to just be forgiven. I want to live a life victoriously going forward. I want to live a life in which my walk with him is not just set right, but it's renewed going forward. It's restored going forward. 
it's healthy and it's harmonious and it's empowered going forward that I might worship him freely, that I might serve him joyfully, that I might shepherd those that God has put in my care uh, with, uh, with pleasantness and with uh, a longing and a love in my heart for those that God has given to our care. And do you, Christian, this morning long to shepherd someone's soul? Do you long to shepherd someone's heart? It's your God-given responsibility to be a shepherd to someone, to love them, to communicate the gospel to them, to disciple them and to teach them how and where and how they should serve and love God and know his word and live for him. It is the work of the church. It's the gospel that's been entrusted to our care. Renewal produces continuance. Notice in, uh, in uh, chapter 51 of Psalm, Psalm 51, uh, in verse 12, he says, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then, then will I teach transgressors thy ways and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Why is my life powerless? Why is it unimpactful? Why does it not make a difference in the lives of others? Why, when I try to share my faith, does it not ring true? Perhaps there's a breakdown in my worship. Perhaps there's a breakdown in my spirit. Perhaps I need to accept the confrontation of God's word in my life. Perhaps I need to long for the convicting power of the spirit of God upon my soul. Perhaps I should experience true confession to the Lord where every sin is cleansed and purged away that I might be inspired to continue in the grace of God and in the work that he's given me to do. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter number 4 and verse number 16, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. In 2 Timothy in chapter 3, in verse number 14, he says, But continue thou in the things, uh, well, let's back up to verse 12. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned, and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise into salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for, for reproof, for instruction, and for correction, for instruction in righteousness. It's profitable. I would say this morning that I need to be that person that is longing to be continuing in the grace and the love and the work of God, continuing in my worship, continuing in my service, continuing in my devotion to my king, continuing in my shepherding. Psalm 51 and verse 10, uh, he said, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit uh, within me. Uh, I want to seek renewal. I want to seek God's forgiveness. I want to seek God drawing and working in my life. He said in Isaiah chapter 40, uh, beginning in verse 28, Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint. And them that have no might, he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fail. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. My friends, this morning I say to you that whenever we come to God and we understand that our life must be a life of worship and of service and of honor, that we come to the Lord and we embrace and acknowledge our sin and we seek to set it right and we allow God to revive our spirit and we don't want it to stop there, but we want to be renewed that our lives might be meaningful and impactful. Then we come to God in confession and in prayer and find his forgiveness that God uh, works in our heart and as Saul, uh, Saul, God sent Samuel uh, to take the throne from Saul and to proclaim that it would be David who would sit upon 
upon the throne and he took the horn of the anointing oil and he poured it out over David's head and he said, Thou art anointed the next king of Israel. As God looked at your life and said uh, that I am anointing you to serve me. I'm anointing you uh, to worship me. I'm anointing you to go out in the Christian life of power, empowered by the Spirit of God to make a difference that David had a time in his life where that anointing needed to be renewed, where it needed to be restored. And in Psalm 92, in verse number 10, which is a psalm that we're uncertain of who wrote it, but one thing is clear, it was used by the Israelites in daily worship. It wasn't used occasionally. It was a daily psalm uh, that they would even, uh, to even sing to themselves sometimes multiple times a day, especially in times of renewal when he said, but my horn shall thou exalt like the horn of the unicorn and I shall be anointed with fresh oil. My friends, this morning, do you need a fresh anointing from God? Do you need a time when you come to God and say, God, I know what you've given me to do and I failed you. God, I know what I should do and I've, I, I've failed and I've sinned and I've drifted and I've made bad decisions, but I want to accept the fact that your word and the preaching has confronted my soul and I don't want to cast it aside, but I want to embrace it and I want to feel the convicting power of the Spirit of God in my life, not about the big things, but about every little thing that comes between me and God. God, would you convict me? Would you penetrate my heart? Would you penetrate my spirit? Would you penetrate my soul? that nothing would come between my soul and my Savior. God, I long for you and I confess my sin. And when it's all confessed, I look to you and say, would you search me and try me and know my ways and see if there be any wicked way in me? Because everything I know is confessed and I want nothing, even the things I've forgotten to come between us. God, reveal it and I'll confess it. And would you forgive me? And would you renew me? And would you restore me that my life would rise up from this service and from my my times of daily walk with you and not go out and be void of power but be continuing in service and shepherding and honoring loving God and serving God and serving one another with the power and the grace of God upon us that our God in heaven might be glorified and that sinners might be converted and that Christians in their faith and their walk with God might be restored yes. would we be a people this morning that would say God my resume needs some work I've not been honorable. I've not served you. I've not worshipped you the way that I should. Would we be a people this morning that would say, I've got some regrets. I have some sin that needs to be confessed. Would we be a people this morning that would long to cry out to God and say, Holy Spirit of God, renew me. Revive me and renew me. Strengthen me that my life might once again know the joy and the power of your salvation.